0: From the American Academy of Dermatology, welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Ben Stoff, Editor-in-Chief. Thanks for tuning in. The adoption of technology solutions has become imperative for dermatology practices to meet the increasing demands of patients who seek digital access and convenience. PatientPOP's all-in-one practice growth solution helps thousands of practice owners and providers promote their practice online and attract and retain patients for life all with far less work. With PatientPop, practices can focus on what matters most, quality patient care. Reach out to PatientPop today at partners at patientpop.com and request a complimentary demo. As an AAD member, receive a $1,500 discount on your first month setup fee when you sign up with PatientPop.
1: Welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Mona Sadekpour, a board-certified dermatologist and founder at SkinMed Institute in Bontree, Colorado. Today, we're gonna have a better understanding of the use of teledermatology in our practice now that we have entered the so-called PHE or the post public health emergency period. To help us educate and update ourselves on the understanding of this topic, I have with me Dr. Corey Simpson, MD, PhD, who is a board certified dermatologist at University of Washington Medical Center's Roosevelt Dermatology Clinic and an assistant professor and researcher in the Division of Dermatology at the University of Washington. He also currently serves as the chair of the AAD Teledermatology Committee. Welcome, Corey. Thanks for having me. Well, it's wonderful to have you here. And I think to help bring some context for our viewers, it's important to just pause for a second and think about where we've been over the last three years. As many of our listeners may recall, it was just a little over three years ago on March 11, 2020, that the World Health Organization declared the COVID-19 a pandemic. And so began the so-called period of the public health emergency time period of the PHE. And now three years later, that particular PHE expired this year on May 11, 2023. And really for listeners to understand, the PHE was really there as a variety of administrative measures to facilitate the use of telehealth. And the goal of these measures were to really help expedite the acceptance and utilization of telehealth services during the pandemic. And now that this time period is over, it's important for our listeners to understand the changes that will be coming with telehealth, which of those measures will remain the same and which may expire in the upcoming months. And to help prepare us and understand that topic better, Dr. Simpson is here with me today. So Dr. Simpson, help get everyone to understand and know you a little bit better. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice setting.
2: Sure. So I'm an academic dermatologist. I work at the University of Washington or UW. I spend much of my time doing lab research. We focus on skin biology, but I also have a clinical practice where I specialize in blistering disease. So I did my residency at Penn and that was well before the pandemic, but learned from some of the teledermatology champions there, especially Carrie Kaverick and Jules Lipoff um, about how we as dermatologists can leverage telemedicine to really expand the reach of our practice particularly to underserved and vulnerable patient populations and that's really what got me interested in telederm. So now that I'm in the Pacific Northwest, my practice really relies heavily on telederm uh, since we're the only major academic dermatology center in a huge area of the country. So I have patients who live in Spokane or Walla Walla or even Alaska. If they develop a rare skin disease, they have to travel a really really long way to come see me as a subspecialist, which is a big ask. So If you think about the average patient with bolus pemphigoid, for example, who's often elderly and immunosuppressed, if patients like that can be safely and effectively managed without having to travel all the way to Seattle for a routine follow-up visit, that's a big win for telemedicine.
1: That's absolutely correct. And it's wonderful that you've been able to utilize teledermatology in your practice. And I think at least now, post-pandemic, most of us understand teledermatology. But for those of us who haven't, or for listeners who haven't had a chance to use it in practice, Give us a big picture understanding of what teledermatology is and as you mentioned already, some of the benefits, but what are the overall benefits of employing this into our practices?
2: Sure. So telemedicine in general allows any physician, dermatologist, or others to deliver care to patients remotely. So you're not in the same space together at the same time. And this can be using a variety of different communication technologies. It could be a simple telephone. It can be an electronic patient portal, a smartphone app, or more commonly a video chat platform like FaceTime or Zoom. But long before COVID, dermatologists had been using telemedicine to really evaluate patients in remote locations. So where, you know, taking a trip to an office would have taken a lot of hours. So it was more of an outreach kind of thing to rural areas. But, you know, as we all know, telemedicine really rapidly expanded during the pandemic out of an abundant need to still care for patients. So dermatologists and patients alike are now discovering there are a lot of benefits to teledermatology, even for those who don't live in rural areas. So think about patients who work full-time during our office hours. Well, using telemedicine, they can take a break for a brief medical appointment instead of having to take a half day off to travel to our clinic, sit in traffic, find parking, wait in the lobby. And so, you know, or what about patients who face challenges with mobility or immunosuppression who've been allowed to use telemedicine to seek care from the comfort of their own home? That's been a great benefit. So There are a lot of benefits, so we're expanding the reach of board-certified dermatologists to remote or underserved areas, which was part of the original purpose, but we've also been able to to show other benefits, new benefits, like reducing certain costs to both our own practices and to patients. We can address skin problems promptly before they become really serious, maybe even avoiding an ER visit for a patient that needs a, a quick telemedicine evaluation. I mean, actually, recent data suggests that patients are quite satisfied with telemedicine. They feel like they're getting good care, and they really, really like the convenience of it. Plus, the pandemic taught us, especially, that telemedicine can actually be used to reduce exposure for ourselves, for our staff, for our patients to communicable diseases. So let's think about a patient needs to come in to discuss their atopic dermatitis and just refill their prescription. You know, but they come down with a cough or maybe a fever on the day of the appointment, well, the right thing to do is cancel your in-person appointment you don't make everybody sick, which is a loss for the patient and for your practice. If instead you can convert that visit to a telemedicine appointment when appropriate, um, that can be a win-win for everybody.
1: That's wonderful. I mean, I was going to ask you what changed during the PHU with respect to teledermatology, but I think you've you've touched upon it. Anything else that you feel is important for listeners to know about how a teledermatology sort of transpired during the pandemic to what it was before?
2: Right. So, I mean, before the PHE was declared, using telemedicine was a little bit challenging if you wanted to do it in billable encounters. There were only designated sites that were allowed to do it on these so-called originating sites. But the whole point was that CMS decided during the PHE, look, we've got to keep patients connected to physicians without risking you know, being in a crowded office setting where people are going to spread COVID to one another. So they implemented several key flexibilities to make telehealth more widely available and a viable option for continuing patient care while we were facing clinic closures or high risk of infection, staff shortages due to call outs for illness, and also a need to conserve PPE in those early days, you may remember. So most importantly, they relaxed the originating site requirements, meaning patients could seek care outside of a designated facility, even from their homes. And that was a game changer because patients could contact us from the comfort of their own home They didn't have to expose themselves to COVID-19. They could do it from home and still get the care they needed. CMS also loosened the requirements as far as licensure and relaxed HIPAA as well. But some of those things are now expiring, so it's important that we're talking about this. So the whole goal was to reduce the barriers to physicians participating in telemedicine and to make the adoption of telemedicine widespread and in a bunch of different practice settings. So that was a real success for those of us who had been advocating for expanding access to telemedicine really for years before the pandemic. It offered teledermatology a big debut, I think it really needed. And I think overall, it was seen as a huge success for the many, many dermatologists and patients who were using telemedicine actually for the first time, and they realized its potential during the pandemic. So now it's really grown to become an essential method of care delivery, in my opinion that's actually preferred by patients as a very convenient way to access us. And so in fact, the AAD actually did a survey of their membership recently, and about two thirds said that they plan to continue utilizing teledermatology even after the public health emergency has expired.
1: That's great to hear. And Dr. Simpson, I'll tell you, uh, I previously was in academics, but now I'm in private practice and I do use teledermatology in my own practice almost on a daily basis. And so I think, you know, sort of moving on to understanding teledermatology after PHE. This is a really important topic for myself, as well as many other AAD members who are listening. And we really would like some guidance on what this really means for all of us, on what the expiration of PHE, so-called after the May 11th, what does that mean for practitioners? And I think an exciting topic is always coding and reimbursement. So if you can guide us a little bit about that, and let's kick off the discussion about understanding how those coding and reimbursements have changed or may continue to change now that we are in the PhE, post-PHE period.
2: Right. So I'll first of all say that sometimes it's difficult to memorize all of these different codes and place of service and all these things. And so the AAD has really gone to great lengths to make a web page specifically dedicated to this because it can be very confusing for members. It's sort of a moving target as the legal landscape changes and as bills are introduced in Congress and may actually change the rules. So really, listeners should go to www.aad.org backslash telederm. So that's really where the Academy is trying to keep up-to-date information for our members to know everything there is to know about how to properly build things. And this really became a great resource for myself and for so many other dermatologists during the early days of the pandemic, where a lot of us were doing this for the first time. So that's the the caveat is go to that website if you really want to know the details. It's all very well maintained there, and our staff members at the AD are excellent at keeping that information current. So, first off, um, I'll start by saying that the thing that made telemedicine work during the PHE was that virtual evaluation management visits, EM visits, were considered the same as in person visits and were paid at the same rate as regular in office visits during the PHE. so that was really important because that's what actually allowed people to make this a, a, a realistic practice a practice in you know private practice you've got to get uh, proper reimbursement for the work that you're doing so that is really what made it viable you were required to utilize a specific place of service code or pos code 11 and you had to put this modifier on it 95 that simply indicates that this encounter was performed using telehealth methods and so that was important since the PHE has ended, this actually does not change until the end of 2023. Into 2024, it's a little bit up in the air to my understanding about how things are going to be going forward. There is some legislation being proposed about making telehealth permissions more permanent, but I think you really have to stay tuned in that regard. But for right now, dermatologists should continue to report Medicare telehealth health services with a place of service code 11 and modifier 95 and it still should be reimbursed well. So that's an important thing. But the question in our minds is, are we going to lose all the progress we made in telemedicine and in teledermatology if some of this stuff reverts and if the payments are not really recognizing the work that goes into telemedicine and telehealth delivery? If we're not being fairly paid for the work that we're doing, I fear that it's going to be a go by the wayside and we'll lose the progress that we've made. But, but I'm optimistic that people have seen how wonderful telemedicine can be. I'm optimistic that the, the payment for this going forward is going to be fair for us.
1: Thank you. That's really helpful information. And obviously, we'll have to stay tuned and follow the story closely to see what happens after the end of this year. And we'll all keep our fingers crossed that the importance of telemedicine will continue to be recognized. So as we're talking about billing, one of the other thing that's important to kind of understand is for dermatologists who are performing telehealth visits at home. This is a practical question. What address should these physicians use as their practice location for Medicare enrollment?
2: So this is not fantastic news for everybody, but starting in 2024, if you're enrolled in Medicare, you will now be required to disclose your home address. So during the PHE, uh, CMS actually allowed physicians to provide telehealth services from their homes without reporting their home address on their Medicare enrollment. You could still bill for services from where you were currently enrolled. And this waiver, again, is in effect until the end of this year, so December 31st, 2023. But after that, if you're doing telemedicine from home, that really should be added to your Medicare enrollment file, which some people have some reservations about, but those are the rules that I'm just, you know, I'm the messenger on that. So sorry.
1: (laughs) No, that makes sense. Thanks for the update on that. And while we're talking about Medicare and virtual visits, can you tell us a little bit about what exactly Medicare virtual check-ins are? And how has that changed with the end of the PHE period?
2: Right. So virtual check-ins, I, I think they're they're not that commonly utilized, but they're really designed to be brief communications, short interactions between patients and either physicians or non-physician clinicians. And they can be done as audio only, for so just a telephone call or video conferencing, which is how more of us are doing telemedicine these days. So during the PHE, dermatologists and non-physician clinicians, could provide virtual check-in services to both new and established patients, but um, that's one other small thing that's changing. Once the PHE now that it has expired, you can really only offer these brief check-in services to established patients. So it was really to recognize and pay for these sort of more brief encounters that weren't a full E&M, but were sort of a brief check-in with our patients.
1: That makes sense. I have actually used that a couple of times, and my understanding is that the reimbursement is some, it's not a lot, (laughs) but at least it's something. So that's how-
2: That's sort of a recurring theme is that, you know, we get this feedback from the RUC committee that sort of evaluates these things that we need to demonstrate utilization for some of these codes in order to argue for proper valuation of them. So I really encourage our members, if they can, to, you know, if these services work in your clinical workflow and your practice, please use them and build them because the more that we have evidence that these are actually providing services to patients and that our physicians are using them, we have more of an argument to go to um, the committees that determine how these things are valued and say, look, these need to be valued um, more fairly for the work that's being put in for them.
1: That makes sense, and that's that's great guidance. You had mentioned non-physician clinicians in just a couple minutes ago, and I wanna focus on that for a second. Obviously, in dermatology, a lot of practices supervise and utilize non-physician clinicians or so-called NPCs who provide services to our patients. And during the pandemic, CMS had modified Medicare physician supervision requirements to include virtual presence. What were those modifications? If you can review that for us, and are they still in effect? And will they be ending now mm-hmm. that we're in
2: PHE? Right. So during the PHE, CMS made some changes to what the definition of direct supervision was for what's considered incident two billing. So normally incident two billing allows non-physician clinicians to bill for services in an outpatient setting at 100% of the physician fee schedule. But that's if the physician conducts the initial encounter and the non-physician clinician provides the care under the direct supervision of the physician. But during the PHE, when a lot of our offices were limited capacity or even the physical location might have been closed, CMS decided to expand the definition of what constituted direct supervision. And they actually included virtual presence through the use of real-time audio and video technology. So this really provided some flexibility to our physicians who were submitting claims under these rules that allowed them to provide services remotely, but still bill using this incident two provision. So, these revised rules actually remain in effect until the end of this calendar year, so the end of 2023. But after that, it should revert to the direct supervision requirement for incident two billing, meaning that you really have to be physically present in the same office where the non physician clinician is providing those services to patients.
1: Thank you. That's clear. So I like to shift gears now and talk about HIPAA requirements, obviously a big deal, a really important topic when you're talking about providing telehealth services. And there's been a huge transition and shift from the very beginning of the pandemic to how those HIPAA requirements are utilized and should be practiced on a daily basis for practices that do telehealth. So how has this guidance from the Department of Health and Human Services differed from the pandemic to the post-pandemic, if you can expand on that?
2: Right. So really, the whole point of HIPAA and enforcing HIPAA compliance is to make sure that patient privacy and security is protected and that their health information is really treated appropriately. And so during the PHE, though, Health and Human Services stated that it was going to use discretion in collecting penalties as long as people were in good faith using telehealth. So in other words, there was some flexibility required in those early days, as you may remember, where People often did not have already set up a platform in their practice where they knew exactly how they were gonna get in touch with patients and provide virtual care was a bit of a scramble. And we had patients we needed to really care for and not have a big gap in their, in their ability to, to get dermatologic care. So at that time, they allowed the use of popular applications that permit video chats like FaceTime, Facebook Messenger, Google Hangouts, Skype, almost anything you wanted to use could be used to make sure that we didn't have a gap in care and to make sure that patients were getting the care that they needed and they weren't going to strap you with a penalty for non-compliance. However, now that the PHE has expired, physicians have only been granted a 90-day extension. So really in August, they've got to be in compliance with the HIPAA telehealth rules. So it gives everyone a little bit more time to implement the necessary changes to make sure how you're practicing telehealth is in line with HIPAA regulations. So if you need a little bit of time, it's there. But really after that, you have to ensure that your platform is HIPAA compliant and you're going to need a business associate agreement in place. So really, even you know, before when there was all this flexibility, we were still encouraging dermatologists, like, look, if you're going to invest in a platform and get it all set up, make sure that you get confirmation that the platform vendor is going to be following these HIPAA requirements because we knew it was coming back. HIPAA was not going away because it's overall really important to protect patients' health information. So really, if you want more details, you can visit the AAD website that has a whole page dedicated to HIPAA compliance. That's really important, but you have to make sure if you're not in compliance at this point, you really have to get that done before three months after the PHE, which will be in August. So, So don't wait on that. It's really important.
1: And as you mentioned, Corey, hopefully most of us have already implemented this in our practice, but it's important to remember that there is a there is a deadline for that. So everyone should be aware of that. And, you know, for kind of moving on, most of what we've talked about today so far has really covered with patients as it pertains to Medicare patients. What impact does the end of the PHE have on telehealth for private insurances?
2: Right. So, It's a little bit unclear in some cases because, as we know, every payer has different policies and rules and payment policies. So the PHE itself was really a federal government declaration that really only affected official rules for CMS. And so the end of the PHE does not really, you know, bindingly affect private payers. So, you know, even when we were during the PHE, coverage for telehealth and remote care services really differed widely among private insurance plans. And this is the same case after the PHE has ended. So there's actually not as much consistent guidance that we can provide about that. The AAD sort of has a policy to encourage you to really check with the private pairs you work with before you provide telehealth health services to their enrollees to make sure that the reimbursement that's allowed is appropriate and is what you would expect to get. You want to make sure that you're properly getting paid for the work that you're doing. So that really is sort of a payer-to-payer dependent thing. But there is actually a whole page about private payers on the AAD websites that addresses some of these concerns. So we'll have some of these websites listed in some of the afternotes from this discussion. But really important that the AAD is trying to help our members as much as they can to understand how to navigate this changing environment, which is often a moving target as the rules change. Great.
1: So, so far we've covered the post-PHE modifications to waivers and flexibilities that impact most of us as dermatologists, but there is something called the Consolidated Act, the CAA of 2023, which has extended many of the telehealth flexibilities and waivers beyond the PHE expiration date. Can you shed some light on the CAA and how that affects us as dermatologists?
2: Right. So the Consolidated Appropriations Act really was part of the omnibus funding bill for the whole federal government that basically extended many of the telehealth flexibilities through the end of 2024. So we're talking that these flexibilities are going to be in effect through December 31st of 2024. So those that will continue, the most important one to our members would be the fact that there's still going to be no geographic restrictions or originating site restrictions for Medicare patients. So remember before the PHE, basically had to do telehealth from a designated facility, and it was mostly sort of rural or underserved areas. The whole ability of patients to be able to do that from home was because of those flexibilities that were provided during the PHE. But that flexibility that the patient can access telehealth services from wherever they want, that's actually been extended through the end of 2024. And we're really hoping that that Congress will will get together to pass a more permanent piece of legislation. And there's been a lot of advocacy that the AED has done to really make telehealth accommodations and payment really more permanent so that we're not kind of dealing on these short term renewals. So anyway, there's also, you know, no restriction on where the patients are located as far as state lines. However, that's superseded by the fact that if you're a dermatologist, seeing a patient who's in another state during the encounter, you're really required to follow the state licensure laws of that state where the patient sits during the encounter. So this can cause some uncomfortable situations and you're really supposed to verify where is that patient that you're treating during the encounter. And that's something you want to be in line with. So you don't want to be crossing that. Also, audio-only telehealth, which has really been an effective means, I've found, for communicating with some patients who just don't have access to the technology that's required to to do video chat or high-speed internet, for example. So that's going to be allowed to continue for Medicare patients and will be covered through the end of 2024, as I mentioned before. And then the last one is that federally qualified health centers and rural health clinics, they used to only be able to be the originating site for patients, and the physician providing the care was located off-site. But now they're actually able to provide telehealth services themselves. So the really important one is that originating site restriction. So patients can still through the end of 2024, be located wherever and participate in telemedicine services with you.
1: This is really great. And I'm just going to summarize a really important point that you just touched on, which is that even though patients can be seen at any us location, it is still important that as dermatologists, when we're seeing these patients, we still need to follow particular state licensure laws. And in reality, you probably need to be licensed in that particular state, even if your patient is calling you in from California to go over an Accutane visit. I think that's a really important point to remember so that everyone can stay out of trouble. And there is the interstate medical licensure compact, correct? Can you expand upon that, that I think allows physicians in, in one state to be able to get other licenses in other state with more ease? Is that correct?
2: Right. So this Interstate Medical Licensure Compact, it's an agreement between state boards of medicine uh, between different states that basically allows board-certified physicians in one of the member states to obtain expedited licensure in the other member states. So it's it's sort of a reciprocity agreement, but basically you, you really have to um, know which states are participating and you have to actually actively seek that licensure. So it's really important, again, to make sure that you're covering yourself and that you are licensed as well as covered by your malpractice insurance, depending on where you're practicing. So those are really important things. There was a lot of real flexibility during the early days of the pandemic where people were able to see patients from wherever. And a lot of states waived those in-state licensure requirements, but most of that has really gone away. So definitely, if you're interested in seeing patients in multiple states, make sure that you know that you're on solid ground legally and malpractice-wise to do that type of interstate medicine.
1: That's great. I do recommend members to check that website for the medical licensure compact. If being able to have license in multiple states is important to you. There are new states every few months, a new state is added to it. Not all 50 states are currently a part of it. A lot are. And again, there's legislation in place that more and more states are joining. So you can take a look at that. Now, you have been so helpful, Dr. Simpson, you provided so much information, and it's been incredibly insightful. Where can members get more information and guidance on this important topic and sort of refer back to some of the links and specifics of what you've mentioned today?
2: Right. Again, I really want to make sure that everyone knows that the AAD is advocating for its members and is really trying to keep them as well informed as it can in this environment of constantly changing rules and regulations and such. So They've really got a great website, aad.org backslash telederm. There's a what's called a teledermatology toolkit, which we've been working on updating it and making sure that it's up to date, but it really provides a lot of information for our members about you know, what are the post-PHE policies that are changing? What are the flexibilities that are going to be kept? What's the up-to-date coding information? How should I be billing certain encounters? Even for newer people who are considering still, they haven't integrated telederm into their practice there's information about how to do that, how to select a vendor, how to integrate it into your practice model. So it's really, really important. And we're also working on some new continued medical education modules about teledermatology, which we hope will be available later this year or early 2024, so that members can access that. But also if you work with trainees, residents, or others that need to learn about telemedicine, we're hoping that those modules will be very useful for those folks.
1: Thank you so much. And I have to say on behalf of all of our members, we are grateful for all the work that you're doing with the AAD Teledermatology Committee to protect this very important service that we have come to know and love dearly over the last three years called teledermatology. And we hope that it continues to be protected and that we can continue to use it in our practices. As we wrap up, is there anything else that you would like to share with our members?
2: Yeah, I mean, really, I just want to say that I think it's really important that the PHE has taught us a lot of lessons. A lot of us struggled in those early days, and we try to find silver linings when tragedies happen. And I think telemedicine really did get a silver lining out of this whole ordeal with the pandemic. And that I think it's really shown members that virtual delivery of healthcare can actually be something that is quite useful for the appropriate patient. Of course, you're going to have to select who who you think is appropriate for for follow-up visits or what have you but it's really, really a powerful approach to medicine. And I think it's the way of the future. And I think that the pandemic really taught us that, that it's a viable option to care for patients. It expands our reach. It can make us more efficient. It can make patients um, have better access, um, you know, more timely access to us. And, and the important thing is that we all advocate though, that the policies that are in place, make sure that teledermatology practice is fairly reimbursed. So, you know, if you have the opportunity to really advocate for making sure that we're being properly compensated for the services that we're providing remotely, that's really, really important. So do your part, be involved in the AED, its advocacy efforts to make sure that we don't lose the progress that we made in telemedicine during the pandemic, that we keep moving forward with teledermatology. So thanks very much.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Simpson, for bringing us up to speed. I certainly have learned a lot and have feel like I've been updated about teledermatology and how to be able to maintain best practices in my own practice. I hope that the listeners found this segment helpful, and I thank you all for listening.
0: The adoption of technology solutions has become imperative for dermatology practices to meet the increasing demands of patients who seek digital access and convenience. PatientPOP's all-in-one practice growth solution helps thousands of practice owners and providers promote their practice online and attract and retain patients for life all with far less work. With PatientPop, practices can focus on what matters most, quality patient care. Reach out to PatientPop today at partners at patientpop.com and request a complimentary demo. As an AAD member, receive a $1,500 discount on your first month setup fee when you sign up with PatientPop. Thanks again for tuning in to another edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. For more dialogues, subscribe to us through the website of the American Academy of Dermatology, then link your subscription through your favorite podcast app. Remember, the subscription is free for residents. New podcasts are released each week in addition to free special bonus episodes. You can also listen to dialogues online through the AAD website. Thanks again for listening.